millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Progressive Britain History Project, part of the Progressive Britain podcast. In each episode, uh, we look at different aspects of the Labour Party's past with the aim of promoting a clear, clearer, hopefully, understanding of its contested history. Perhaps busting a few myths on the way, maybe creating a few as well. Um, Introducing some new ways of thinking and making connections between Labour's history, uh, its present and, and its future. Uh, My name's uh, Stephen Fielding. I'm Professor of Political History at the University of Nottingham, and I co-present the podcast along with Laura Beers, Professor Laura Beers, who's Professor of History at the American University in Washington. So uh, hello, Laura. Hey there, Steve. Uh, Today in our episode, uh, we've got uh, another professor, and I I looked up um, the collective now for professors, and it's a pomposity of professors we have um we're not we're not going to be pompous in this podcast um we've got professor glenn o'hara who is professor of modern and contemporary history at oxford brooks um and who's written many too many things too many good things for me to um to be nice about him um and he's currently working on a book about new labor which we're all looking forward to seeing when it comes out uh, in the not too dim and distant future, hopefully, Glenn. Yeah, we hope so. I think uh, pandemic and homeschooling has derailed my, um, has derailed my plans. But uh, uh, in, in within the next few years, there will be a massive tome on new labour, yes. Good, good. But the reason why, the reason why we've hauled Glenn on to, to be interrogated um, in this podcast is because he's written a chapter about Harold Wilson, his reputation and his achievements, the two things being somewhat different, um, in in an edited collection, um, a collection called Rethinking Labour's Past, which was edited by Nathan Yule and contains other very good chapters, um, Glenn's being one of them, of course, that, that seek to sort of rethink, as the title implies, um, certain aspects of, of Labour's history. So, before before we start to throw questions and have a have a chat with Glenn about that uh, about about Harold Wilson, um, there's a 2020 survey um, of Labour Party members which suggests that 25 percent of them have, don't really know that much about Harold Wilson. 
So if I just very, very briefly give give the sort of very much edited highlights of Harold Wilson's career and why it might be interesting, um, that might that might be useful for at least some of our listeners. Um, I mean, in 1963, that's when Harold Wilson became Labour leader. Unexpectedly, Hugh Gateskill died. We talked about Hugh Gateskill in a previous podcast. And the reason why, I guess, um, and Labour, Labour members of one of their assets, he had a very favourable impression of, of Harold Wilson, those that knew something about him. The reason why is because in 1964, he led the Labour Party to end that nearly 13, 14 years of Conservative governments. Um, and you had united the party behind a kind of um, a very optimistic, uh, can-do rhetoric about modernising Britain, making it fairer, more productive, to unleash the productive forces, the white heat of, of British industry to the benefit of all. Um, Ends, ends Conservative Party rule um, only only just a bit. It gets gets a minority, get just about gets a few um, a small minor, a majority in the House of Commons. But then in 1966, builds on that as Prime Minister and gets a big landslide. So basically, Harold Wilson, arguably in, in the 1960s, could do he had he had the political tools to live up to those hopes and aspirations. The question being, did he? Uh, the extent to which he did and why he didn't do. And we'll talk, we can talk about that. Um, and the, the government ends again unexpectedly um, in 1970. It, it, was, it was an election everyone thought Wilson would win. He loses, some say, because of the issue of immigration, which is something we might want to think about. Um, and then in the next few years, his leader of the opposition has a difficult time trying to keep the party together. The left is moving further away. Um, the right is becoming more and more um, aggressive, and particularly over the issue of Europe and the continued membership of of Britain in the EEC, which Wilson manages, thanks to Tony Benn's sort of very interesting device, of having a referendum if Labour gets back into office to confirm or not the, the decision of the Heath government to enter um, the EEC. Labour somehow manages to get back into office in February of 74 in the midst of an economic crisis, but only only has a very it only has a, a minority position, doesn't actually have a majority in the Commons. Wilson builds on that in October, but only gets a slight majority in the House of Commons and has to face terrible economic problems, um, world economic problems, big inflation, a recession, lots of strikes. And and he starts the process of uh, creating a social contract, relying on the unions, essentially, to get the Labour government through this difficult period. But then unexpectedly, lots of unexpecteds in Wilson's career, in early 1976, he resigns. It must be one of the very few prime ministers to go before people say, why aren't you going? Very different kind of context for the one that we've got in the present present moment with Boris Johnson. So that's Wilson in a nutshell. Now, Glenn, I'm not sure if that, that's a fair summary. Of, I mean, I will have missed lots out. We can go over what, what I've missed out and, and whatever. But you're, in your chapter, you you focus a lot on his changing reputation from from being seen possibly like a crook when he leaves office in 76, rather under a cloud, to today being, you know, seen as being someone that, well, Keir Starmer said that of the last 50 years, leaders of the last 50 years, he thought that Wilson was the one that he would aspire to being, if he could be, if that was, he was the best leader as far as he was concerned. So, so what do you, you know, generally speaking, why do you think there has been this shift um, in reputation? 
well, this is a kind of how long have you got? Because I can bore about this for hours. But I mean, I think I think there's a couple of things I'd highlight straight away, which is the first is just the distance of time lends enchantment. You know, when you look at the details of governing, you know, when he left office, there's this quite discredited list of, of honours, the so-called lavender list, which makes him look bad. He'd become a kind of slow moving kind of sweeper figure in, if you want a football um, analogy, where he wasn't very quick on his feet anymore. So people's immediate memory of him was, well, this was someone who kind of had his best years and had gone out in a kind of a bit of a smell. But actually, you know, when you zoom back, I and mean, this, this is a time of immense achievement. And I think, to be honest, this will be, uh, seeing as I'm writing it, a little bit like the history of Blairism, which is, you know, when Blair leaves office, the Brownites essentially, to some extent, push him out. But when you zoom back, there's also, there's massive achievements. I mean, I think, you know, even even Theresa May and David Cameron, people, revisionist historians will come and say, oh, they did this. You know, David Cameron passed gay marriage. So there is the, the distance of time it does lend a kind of sympathy and there's a human sympathy for, for Harold as well. But also as we get away from his period in office, it's just um, things in the UK look so bad at different points, early eighties kind of now last few years, maybe in terms of real wage growth or inequality or public services that there's so many things that he, he does Wilson in power that look good. Just one example is, you know, um, uh, health centres for general practitioners, which bring together lots of different types of of health practitioners that that really had been an unfulfilled element of the NHS Act in 1948. That actually, when you look at it properly, if real wages surge, people are going to look back and say, "Well, this isn't as bad as as kind of the the little minutiae of politics like the lavender list make it look." So there's two things there. I mean, Laura, have you got any particularly strong view about about Wilson? I mean, I, myself, I've, I'm quite conflicted. I don't know what you you think about him. I mean, I think that's it speaks to your um, your poll that you cited at the beginning, Stephen, because you know, as a Labour historian, um, you know, he's the prime, the one Labour prime minister, the one of only four, right? About which I have the least strong opinions. Um, but the opinions that I do have about him tend to be, you know, less about his economic policies, um, which, while ambitious, never played themselves out, more about the kind of successes in terms of modernizing Britain on a cultural level. Um, and, you know, I think that that legacy, the fact that he, you know, the things that he did had created in some ways the modern cultural landscape that we now take for granted, sort of akin to Glenn's statement that Cameron probably will even get a positive nod in terms of, you know, um, legalizing gay marriage, um, make it kind of easier because we take those things for granted to to forget than reflecting back on the kind of seeming descent into chaos in um, the late 60s and early 1970s in terms of the economy, um, which is not something that should be entirely laid at his feet, right, but for which I think he gets easily dismissed by history. He, he does that in his own person as well. You know, he's a, he's a more of an everyman than, than a lot of other leaders and a lot of other politicians at that time. You know, what he wears, how he talks with a kind of overtly northern accent, the Ganex Mac, the, the Labrador, the shopping in, co in the co-op, going to the Silly Isles for your holiday. He modernises Britain just in himself. He's kind of he's kind of with the times. He's comfortable talking about football and music um, and kind of kind of going to the pub 
he is someone who actually embodies to some extent literally embodies what it is to look like kind of middle-aged middle-class black-coated worker of the time his background was relatively humble certainly compared to um the conservative prime ministers um that, that he he succeeded in, and also like hugh gates goal as well um although there is there is a suggestion that he was playing up some of that um that you know he smoked a pipe in public but in private he smoked cigars you know um so but but nonetheless he was you know from, from a relatively humble background but one the the thing that Keir Starmer identified as to why um he was the best leader from the last 50 years um was because he said he united the party behind him now Keir Starmer said this when he was seeking the leadership of the Labour Party, where one of his primary goals, at least ostensibly, was to unite the Labour Party. Um, but if if that was true, did he? Did he really unite the party? Because it completely fell apart, certainly after he left, uh, which doesn't suggest he was doing a terribly good job. And and I remember Shirley Williams on the right of the party, the right that hated him, viscerally hated him, the, the left didn't like him much, but for different reasons. But Shirley Williams basically hated him, or at least was very critical of him, uh, because he did. His primary aim was to unite, keep the party united. And she said, "Well, the Labour Party shouldn't have been kept united. It should have been resolved one way or the other." So I just wonder if what you what you think about that as a as a unifier. I think I think this depends on where we stand about kind of Labourism. Uh, and I'm ambivalent about that personally, because I think what Wilson would have said was that look, under first past the post, there can only be one progressive governing party and it has to be has to have a core. It can have a left. It can have a right. But it's got to have a leader that probably most people hate. And, you know, he would he would say in, in private, look, I go out and people just throw excrement at me all day. That's my job. Um, and, and could anyone have done better? Callahan does quite well doesn't he, in 76 and 77, holding the government together during the International Monetary Fund crisis. But the extent of that crisis over Europe, I think if you hadn't had someone as strangely cynical but talented as Harold, the Labour Party could just have been obliterated. If you watch that Jenkins-Ben debate on Panorama, I mean, these are people who hate each other more than anybody else hates each other in the whole world, even professors. So, you know, this, this is a party that, is almost impossible to hold together. I think that's why Starmer thinks about him because that's what Starmer's challenge is coming in in 2020, isn't it? Well, also on that point, I mean, he holds the party together, arguably at the moment of 1997 and arguably with people hating him from either direction equally as much, Tony Blair brings the party together, right? And brings them back into power on a much larger landslide than Wilson, you know, and was, you know, barely had a functioning government for much of his time in power. But you look at this question, Stephen, I think it's a bit of a cheat, right? Because Starmer was asked, who, which Labour leader of the past 50 years do you most admire? So he can't say Attlee, right? Long Bailey kind of fudges it and says Attlee anyway and has to be reminded that was more than 50 years ago. He can't say Blair because Blair has become so toxic despite having won multiple elections for Labour, right? And, you know, he can't say Callahan, even though, as you say, Callahan did a reasonable job because Callahan's government ends in the ignominy of the winter of discontent, right? So he's got very few candidates. And in that sense, you know, he's, he's got to turn to Wilson because you know, Wilson is one of only three Labour leaders to actually have won a majority. Um, and 
in the aftermath of the whole Brexit debacle, one of the things that can be said about Wilson is he managed to at least get the country through and get his very fractured party through the first Brexit referendum, right? So it's, you know, in the land of pygmies, you know, I mean, I guess you have a kind of, I'm not sure it's really saying Wilson was the world's greatest leader or that Wilson was truly a unifier, but Wilson, despite being hated by the left and right, managed to kind of hold the team together for a while. Blair as the silent man of Labour history here is really important. The, the man who cannot be mentioned, you know, the absence, the shadow of, of, in the background of the Labour Party, because Blair is someone who very similarly speaks demotic and is very, very much like, you know, inverted commas, average middle class voters in the 90s and is a brilliant speaker in the same way uh, Wilson was a brilliant speaker and, and speaks in kind of ways that are summarised conventional wisdom, but but shove it in a certain direction. But you can't say Blair because this is the great unspeakable. I think that will change just like Wilson, but it will take a long time. Yes, we'll probably had this question come up 30 years ago, right, in the early 80s as opposed to the early 20s. I guess that's 40 years ago. Um, then you couldn't have said Wilson. But now time, you know, time's the great healer or whatever. Um, and with some distance, Wilson doesn't seem that bad. Except he, Wilson demonstrates Blair's challenge over Iraq because Wilson keeps out of Vietnam, which is the great thing we forget, really divided Labour in the late 60s. And yet the left still basically pile into him for being a kind of American lickspittle and kind of running dog of capitalism. So really, Wilson shows how you can't do, you can't get it right on that transatlantic relationship with actual resort to force. I mean, it's it's interesting because there are some parallels between more, more than just that that you just said, Glenn, between Wilson and Blair. Uh, I mean, it was interesting the way in which when when the Iraq War happened, and even before that. Tony Benn, who in the end came to be, I mean, he liked him as a human being, but he hated him as a political figure by the 1970s, was a big critic. Um, and the left in general was a big critic of Wilson. They started to use Wilson as, as an example with which to, to attack Blair. So they, say, so they did say, oh, well, at least Harold Wilson didn't, you know, didn't enter the Vietnam War, um, even though they criticised him in the ways that you said that they did. But also, um, Wilson, in, in the... Because there's this, there's this brief phase, isn't there, in when he's leader of the opposition in the early days of being a prime minister, when he, he does the, the famous speech that everybody kind of knows the one bit of, of promising the white heat of the technological revolution to unleash all these forces, um, to to kind of at, attack the um, the kind of the elitism of the conservatives, to to unleash the the grammar school talents, you know, humble people will will be given a chance. And all of that, he's got a wonderful rhetoric and talks about a new Britain, modernising Britain. And this is all very Tony Tony Blair. I mean, actually, people did, did draw the comparison at the time between the two, that, that, Wilson, that Wilsonian rhetoric was very similar, even though Blair himself didn't want to be associated with Harold Wilson and corporatism and using the state in the way that Wilson did. Um, so I wonder if, I mean, that's something that maybe Starmer certainly does seem to lack. You know, that at least we don't really know how genuine Wilson was in his rhetoric, but he had a rhetoric and Starmer really hasn't really created that sense of, you know, we, we know where we're going and we're going in this direction and we want to take everyone with us. So I suppose we, we're kind of damning Wilson with faint praise, but at least he had the rhetoric. Um, 
or am I running out of road here? It's a very broad church that Wilson brings into government as well. It's got a big left-wing edge, but with George Brown, for instance, it's got a really solid trade union and right-wing edge. A little bit like we often forget, you know, the Blair cabinet, the first Blair cabinet has got the left in it. It's got, you know, Claire Shaw, Robin, Robin Cook from the soft left, Michael Meacher is environment minister, you know, some left-wing people. And there's a bit of a worry, I think, about the Starmer project with some people on the left of the Labour Party, not the Corbynite left, but the softer left, that he is running a very one-dimensional office, uh, care that it's going to—it's a kind of Blair tribute act. Now, I think that's unfair, but I think that the problem of managing a very vociferous Labour Party while keeping its left-wing edge, which Wilson and Blair early on definitely do do, um, is is going to be really difficult for Starmer, especially when one of the secrets of that technological determinism you're talking about is that there was money to spend, there was growth. If Starmer has no money to spend, it's going to be much harder. Just to follow up on that, he's walking a fine line, isn't he, Glenn? Because he has to draw a line under the Corbyn project. You had that ridiculous you know, attempt for um, Boris to, to pin him as would a Corbynista in a, you know, Islington blazer or something like that in PMQs the other week. But I mean, so he's he's got to create that distance. But he does flank himself sort of thinking about him in Parliament, right, with Rachel Reeves on one shoulder and Angela Rayner on the other, and is attempting both, I think, to sort of show that he's progressive in terms of his gender politics, but also that he can somehow bring together the two sides of the party and, you know, excluding that which has you know, the other thing which cannot be named, right? The, you know, the Corbyn element. Um, I, and it's a difficult balancing act for him, though, right? And he also has the potential, arguably. I mean, he's our, you know, since Wilson, he's Wilsonian in that he wasn't a grammar school boy, but he goes to a, you know, privatized former grammar school on one of these Thatcherite scholarships, right? He does have that sort of son from humble background, makes good, um, rhetoric if he could only lean into it, but he doesn't seem to have Wilson's comfort with that demotic, right? And telling the story about himself as a bigger story about Britain, the way that Wilson did. Well, the reason you're being very fair, as is your want, is that, you know, Starmer's position when he comes in is much weaker than Blair and Wilson's. I mean, taking over from Gateskill, who was becoming respected by lots of Tories in the country, had a kind of Tory mean to him as well, a kind of manner which is um, attracted some voters or taken over from John Smith where well, these people have laid the groundwork and you can just stand on it I mean you know let's face it in December 2019 Labour had a near de- a yet another near-death experience that Starmer's done pretty well at sweeping up the, the debut from I mean one of the secrets of Wilson and Blair is they've got a huge tree of fruit that just falls on them of policies these great policies that Smith and Gateskill have, and, K- and Kinnock of course have have um have been farming for a decade, you know. Maybe we, we should look at, you know, what the position that, that Wilson sort of, well, where, where did he go with this kind of good position, this solid position that Glenn has kind of suggested, you know, Gateskill having done the policies, many people fed up with the Tories already, the economy actually not doing too badly. Um, so, and and he's got this great mobilising rhetoric. So, so what went wrong? Um, that, that's, that, that's usually what people were asking the 1960s on the left, you know, with all these hopes. So what, what were his greatest successes and failures in, in the 1960s? Because that's really, that's where his reputation stands or falls, isn't it? That, that government of 64 to 70. Well, for me, there's one big headline, which is defence spending falls 
below education spending, which surges. So essentially what you see is a, a Britain that is uh, creating itself a balance of payments crisis all the time, not on the private side, not on the export side, but with defence spending, mostly east of Suez, but all around the world with you know multi-carrier fleets on in, in most uh, oceans. And instead of that, as that, as that spending falls, partly by necessity, you get a massive expansion of secondary school spending and higher education spending, including his own pet project of the Open University, which is a complete, uh, I think, reorientation of the British economy from that kind of David Edgerton warfare state economy to a knowledge economy. And I think put together with all of the things that happened in the 80s and 90s, one of the secrets of the British economy when it surges around the time of the millennium is about its it's actually successful education sector. Those of us who work in its education sector right now, um, and, and it, uh, inculcating creativity and increasing investment in skills, if you want to put it in that crude kind of way. So the, for me, the big secret is Britain is reorientated away from the imperial Commonwealth role and towards uh, a modern social democratic economy. And it, and it never gets the Wilsonian period the credit for that. Never. There you go. There's some big, bold claims there. Yes, that's that's one I've not heard. Um, for Well, I've never heard that one actually put forward. Um, we aim to please. So there's some good, there's a new argument that's come out. <laughs> okay. But, but more generally in terms of the economy, I mean, Wilson wanted to unleash the white heat of technological change. He wanted to shift, you know, an economy that was, it was growing, but it wasn't growing as fast as, the French, the German, the Italian, the Japanese, and of course the American economy, it was falling back. Um, and and to what extent did, you know, and, and had a ministry of technology, you know, they had a department of economic affairs, a whole new kind of organisation administration that was meant to get the economy moving and developing in new, in new and exciting ways. Um, I mean, what happened to that? What happened to that promise? Well, I'm afraid to say that, as all truly boring people say, I'm actually an expert in this. And I think the, the, one of the headlines there is it does succeed. Growth does accelerate and productivity accelerates and real wages accelerate altogether, which, of course, is what you want. But, of course, inflation comes into the equation towards the very end of the 60s, which we probably don't have time to talk about. But the first thing to say is it does succeed in some ways. A growth orientation of the economy is, for instance, in regional policy, is pumped up. Second thing to say is some of those technological um, initiatives do fail because what they do is they glue together lots of small companies like in ICL or in British in uh, in the car industry, for instance, just as the Macmillan government have done without addressing really their functional management problems because you just glue loads of poor companies together. You just get one big poor company. Right. Well, that was in some ways unavoidable, but below the kind of below that kind of. Um, headline, I think, of these big beasts that don't work very well through the Industrial Reorganisation Corporation. I think we do get, you know, in the water industry, in anti-pollution, in pharmaceuticals, we get some far less glamorous, but no less important breakthroughs spun out by Department of Science, Industrial Research, for instance, the government's uh, hydrological um, office, it's very, very boring stuff, but actually very, very important for the fact that Britain, all the things we hear, we don't hear about in terms of the British economy. It's a farmer powerhouse, for instance, as COVID was eventually going to show. And you get also, I mean, I've been 
teaching George Orwell this semester and, um, you know, sort of one of Orwell's real dreams about the evolution of socialism is the growth of this kind of, you know, educated technocrat science sector and this kind of growth of the middle class, which he hopefully argues, right, is going to erode class distinctions and class hierarchy. And one of the other things you can say about the Wilson governments is this is a period where inequality is probably at its lowest that it's ever well, pessimistically, you could say that it's ever going to get, but certainly that it ever has gotten um, in modern British history, right? I mean, this is a period where you do have a kind of burgeoning middle and that the kind of excesses at either end of the spectrum, while still present, are are less dramatic either than they are in the earlier period or than that they will become again first under Tony Blair, right? Because for all that there is much that can good that can be said about Blair, he wasn't that concerned about inequality and um, and that had long-term consequences, which we're still living with. Yeah, I mean, throughout this period, inequality falls, and it falls propitiously. It doesn't just drift downwards, it plunges, and it, and it ends up its lowest in 1979, as you suggest. Is that a deliberate act of the government, or is it... Or, I mean, trade unions are becoming increasingly, you know, they're becoming bigger. There's, and and this, this is leading on to one of the issues that the Wilson government kind of headlined, at least of the Wilson government um, had had issues with, that the unions were very powerful, and that and and as people have proven, powerful unions actually does help you know reduce inequality. Um, and there were lots of strikes, and and the Wilson government had difficulties with that, and and seemed to believe that you know one of the blockages to expanding the economy faster than they they were doing was that the unions the unions were a problem. Um, and in fact, Wilson, I mean, because I, I've, I've gone through the National Archive for some of this, Wilson was very much seeing the unions as, as, as an issue, as a problem. And there's this one remarkable, because I'm determined to put to say this, that there's one remarkable incident sometime in the in, in the early t- time of his government when there's a threatened milkman strike, right? When, when, you know, Britain used to have people delivering milk to doors and they were threatening to go on strike in the London area. And Wilson's immediate response was, let's send in the army to man the milk floats, right? And and civil servants had to say, well, if you're going to do that, you have to declare a state of emergency. And then he backed off. So Wilson's sort of attitude towards the unions was interesting, but 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 he's, he's generally criticised, at least from the left, of, of, of just focusing on the unions as a problem and, and actually going along with the Conservatives in that regard. I mean, is that fair? Is that fair to, to look at it like that? And to follow on, Glenn, because I would actually love to know the answer to this. I just don't. I mean, do you think it is more trade unionism or the growth of the knowledge economy and genuine increases in social mobility that leads to declining inequality in this period? Well, and what are the drivers of that? Well, what I would say is there's, huge, there's a huge number of factors and, and, and any government, because it happens across the West, so any government is just kind of riding the tiger right on the back. One of the points is housing. So housing costs fall so much that you can buy a house for six, seven hundred pounds in the London suburbs. That's still a lot when you're earning five, ten pounds a week, but that's um, between you. But that's easily affordable for young couples. And of course, remember the age at first marriage plunges to its its, its uh, earliest ever. Got young, got very early family formation. Got a lot of saving going on. You've got. Uh, cheap housing, including subsidised council housing, housing association housing. You've got a ferment in education where about 12, 14% of the population are being shoved into very academic schools from all sorts of backgrounds. 
which of course is like spinning the tombola on social mobility. So you've you've got a, a huge number of things going on, some of which, as you sort of suggest, the Wilson government uh, slows down because, of course, it comprehensivisation is it looks a lot more like grammar schools than in many ways than people think. But it's still different. I mean, I think I should go back to the union point, which is that I think Wilson's suspicion of the unions is not unions per se. It's the fact that the unions he knew in the 1940s were losing control of their grassroots through the kind of shop steward movement and through wage drift uh, and through radicalism at local plants. So what Wilson's worried about and why corporatism is in some ways a good idea is he wants union bosses to get hold of them and control them. So it's not unionism per se that he doesn't like. It's the fact that, you know, for instance, communist infiltration, which he blames for the dock strike, has got hold of the unions and is denuding the unions of power. It's not that they're too powerful. It's they don't have any power. They can't control their members. What what he wants is to order the commanding heights of the economy. But increasingly, the economy is so complex, you can't do that. That's one of the problems he runs into, I think. Well, do you think it's the seeming failure to kind of, you know, be the puppeteer and orchestrate the economy in positive ways from above, you know, from the commanding heights of the 60s and 70s that then leads new labor to more or less abandon that project and focus on kind of tweaking from the margins as opposed to kind of puppeteering from the top? Well, what I'd say to put a positive... <laughs> In my, in my way, to put a positive spin on that New Labour aspect, which is that essentially the New Labour's analysis of Wilsonism is it's too many tactics, which drains all your energy by trying to micromanage. And what you need is an industrial strategy. And what you need is a public sector strategy, not managing these things. So you set in stone the structure and then you let more devolution take control. Now, actually, of course, as we know, that's also hypermanaged by the Brown Treasury so that you have 126, you know, public se- public service agreements. So it doesn't always work like that. But essentially, the new Labour analysis of Wilsonism is that it, by attempting to manage things, it manages nothing. Well, given that's a sort of fairly mixed kind of record, maybe on the economy. But one of the things that people, when they look back on that period, and they it's kind of a universal acclamation for the progressive social reforms that, that occur under the Wilson government, whether Wilson himself was that keen on all of them, because he was quite a conservative kind of a guy, but he, he allowed various permissive reforms about abortion, um, about decriminalising homosexuality. Um, there were there were some modest measures with regard to women. I mean, Barbara Castle banged the table and got at least a commitment to equal pay in just the dying days of that government. I mean, they they generally seem to be sort of positive aspects of the Wilson government and actually something that New Labour did, did continue. I mean, it, you know, the social liberalism um, of, of that government. I mean, yeah. is it is it completely fair to, to, to give Wilson the credit for this or was it maybe it was going to happen anyway? Um, well, I think he, you've got one of the things you've got to remember about Wilson is that originally he was a liberal. And I think on social issues, we I would see him as in the mould of a kind of tolerationist which is, you know, if you want to do things in your private home, that's great, that's fine, and the state shouldn't, and the state shouldn't inquire or intervene. He's not in the more advanced progressive mould of a kind of celebratory mould of, of of social change, as, as you suggest, Steve. But he's he's quite happy to go with the moment and to to sort of burnish his government and his reputation with these reforms. And in general, in general, he's a bit like one of those conservatives who huffs and puffs a lot. 
about social change, but actually when it comes, when the chips are down, he actually believes, he actually thinks it's a good thing. Um, and in some of it, I suspect is a, is a pose, especially as he gets older. And these kind of social movements are a bit more of a puzzle to him as they are to most of us as we, as we get older. Um, and he is really driven. You, you spoke earlier about his background. His dad had been unemployed. He went to Australia when he was young and he thought of, he thought a lot of Australia as a kind of classless place. His, his uncle was an Australian politician. He was, he was driven by this kind of hatred of snobbish condescension and, and kind of stopping the life chances of minorities as people would have seen them then. So there was a genuine passion there. It's just that this didn't take his real interest because really his real interest was in the economy and really it was in, in, in stats and data. He was an obsessive data person. He loved all of that, something I very much sympathise with. So it, it just these social issues didn't really take his attention, that the highlight of his brain, which is very powerful, dynamic brain, but quite it could be quite narrow. It focused on task after task after task. Well, how, Glenn, then, I mean, in a place where you see an intersection of kind of data and statistics and social issues, I mean, how would you assess his performance in terms of minorities? And I know you've said in other spaces that kind of, you know, broader social anxieties about immigration kind of undercut his ability to to do much for the minority community in Britain. But, you know, this is a place where statistics in terms of educational and job performance and and differentials in real wages were existing and were something that a kind of technocrat could identify and seek to tackle, but where maybe there was less progress made and where there are certainly now intergenerational legacies with which any potential Starmer government, mm. um, you know, were it to come to power, would have to tackle. Well, the first thing to say is that statistics on those those kind of topics are really crude in the 60s and they hardly exist sometimes. And Wilson puts in place, I wrote long ago, I wrote an economic history review article, should you wish to subject yourself to 40 pages of this, about his statistical reform programme. So the first thing to say is the Wilson government sets out to find out about married women's pay, for instance, because one of the things they want to do is for women after childbirth to come back into the labour force. That's not because they're enormously progressive. It's because there's a labour shortage and they want they don't want to lose the labour, for instance. So the first thing to say is that they, they set out on a data reform programme, which you'd expect from a kind of wartime civil servant like Wilson, who worked on the beverage report, worked on the stats of creating the welfare state. But I think the second thing is that there's a there is a deeper commitment here to a fairer society. It's just that that fairer society will be forged by, I think you used the word technocracy, be forged by planning, which is not economic planning, social planning. So via health centres, via better housing, via, you know, things I've written about, like, you know, hot and cold water in the home, upstairs and downstairs. Society will become so much better that you'll have more time to relax into a more progressive and more tolerationist ethos. It's a very optimistic creed. I mean, shared by lots of conservatives as well, isn't it? But basically, it, it's, it's got this, perhaps, as we look back, uh, misguidedly optimistic view, which is that as things get better, all the angles will be knocked off kind of these social divides and these, these deep-seated social hatreds, like immigration. So, for instance, econo- um, educational priority areas, which the Wilson government brings in, one of the indicators for the, getting the money for these areas is um, not speaking English as a first language for their children in the school. 
So the idea is basically you can ameliorate and you can actually change things. That's really it's interesting you you bring up migration because I think that's that's probably the the last topic we can we can discuss and it's actually very very important and probably still very well it still is a very relevant kind of an issue particularly for Keir Starmer and the present policy on refugees and what Labour's position is on immigration because um, 1970 was it was said anyway to be an election that was lost um, from Labour because of a shift of working class votes to the Conservatives thanks to Enoch Powell, um, on the basis of, you know, quite virulently racist um, opinion um, to stop black immigration and to get get black immigrants out of the country and to back where they came from in the rhetoric. Um, and um, I just wonder how you how you thought about how Wilson tackled that challenge. I mean, it was a challenge that, that was there all the way through the 1960s and it became more and more prominent, like I say, with Enoch Powell and his Rivers of Blood speech. And and from my, I mean, I'm I'm kind of myself, like I'm about Wilson as a whole, kind of in two minds. I mean, his government introduces the first race relation acts and seems to legislate and does legislate against prejudice, but at the same time, um, introduces racist um, immigration restrictions. I mean, they're they are racist. I mean, they they stop black members of the Commonwealth coming, but let's keep the white ones keep coming in. Um, so I just wonder what, what you thought about that as a strategy. I mean, whether it could be said to have worked. And I guess, as I say, it's it's probably one of the issues that's most relevant from the Wilson era, that's that's relevant to the Starmer era. Well, again, how long have we got? But I, I think it, it, it does and it doesn't work, which is a really Weasley answer politically. Of course, it looks... Um, it looks uh, very suspicious to us personally today in our, in our personal views. So essentially the 68 um, Act that you're talking about is an attempt to prevent Kenyan Asians entering the country while allowing white uh, British citizens and subjects from around the Commonwealth, Empire Commonwealth to, so they can still come into the country. Essentially, if you've got British forebears who were born in the UK, then you can come in. And if you haven't, but you've got British passport, then you can't. And that's really that's really about East African Asians. And of course, that's going to hit the Heath government, isn't it, under Idi Amin? It's going to hit the Heath government under Ugandan Asians. So this is explicitly racist um, based on the colour of your skin and, and your uh, birth heritage. Now, plenty of countries have that, of course, in this period, and, st- and some of them still do. But this is actually a, a Labour government passing an act, so it is a, very problematical. But remember, it's, it's, it's Callaghan pushing that rather than Wilson. In, if you read the Crossman Diaries, for instance, because uh, because Callahan sees himself as kind of you know protector of the working class Labour voter and protector of the trade union member, and lots of these people are pretty angry about access to housing, pretty angry about wages, which they perceive to be attacked by um, immigration of all sorts. So it's not Wilson really pushing this as much as it's, it's Jim Callahan, but it doesn't really work because immigration doesn't fall that much uh, and it continues to be high. Uh, and, it, and it comes in it comes in groups, doesn't it? So we've got a, a 40s, late 40s, early 50s immigration. Then we've got a big subcontinent Indian immigration, Bangladeshi immigration in the 60s. And then we have a European immigration in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s with um, EU enlargement. So it's, it's partly the, the, the sharp time frame which is doing the pushback from the populace. And for a government to really take the edges off that, it's very, very, very hard 
and it, it doesn't really it doesn't really go as you mentioned the 1970 election where immigration was highest and around where Powell had his seat in Wolverhampton that's where the swing is biggest you know thinking about parallels to today and in winning back red wall seats right um, both those legacies of anti-immigration feeling and how you deal with that are going to be a question for Starmer. But there's also this question moving forward about thinking yet again about refugees. And here we have a situation where, you know, the political discussion of the moment is, is rather uniquely, um, again, about white refugees. Um, this is, you know, this is not Heath and um, Uganda. And I guess, you know, it, but it plays back, I think, on a lot of those fears about, Eastern European white communities undercutting working class wages that we saw fueling into Brexit? And does that potentially make the current refugee crisis a kind of problematic terrain for, in a unique way for Starmer? You know, I mean, that we've just kind of put Brexit behind us and all of a sudden we're discussing allowing a large community of Eastern Europeans into the UK. Well, well, as I say, for what it's worth, I think that the, both the Wilson and the later Labour leaders attempt to speak out of both sides of your mouth and to go twin track, which is to pass a load of anti-discrimination measures while you tighten up on immigration. There's a real political trap there, which is you sound like you're insincere and you're not and you're not speaking the truth. So, for instance, the Blair government's attempt to say, oh, you know, very, very few immigrants will come from the accession countries clearly leads to millions of people turning up. Right. And that is what voters hate rather than necessarily the immigration. Because actually British attitudes to immigration, especially in the 1990s and onwards, are pretty open compared to lots of other European countries. That's one of the contradictions of Brexit, isn't it? The Brits are pretty open to immigration. It's the, it's the speed and it's the perceived uncontrolled extent of the immigration, which is the problem for voters, not the immigration itself. Remember, the single biggest group of immigrants are white in the 60s. They're Irish, by far the biggest group are Irish and they're accepted partly for racial reasons, uh, partly because of the jobs they do for lots of other reasons. But um, so it, this is by no means a populist that's like stop immigration entirely. It's actually very complex. And I think a leader that spoke to people in a serious manner would do pretty well. And I mean, drawing things together, really, and concluding, um, that's actually something that Wilson was accused of not doing. Um, certainly Tony Benn, um, Whenever he raised the issue of of immigration, he was told to shut up by Wilson. But basically, basically Wilson didn't want anyone in the party to talk about it. Um, and of course, behind the scenes, Labour was doing some modest things to improve the position of, of of black immigrants and and their descendants. And you know, but it was all on the quiet and and yet still pandering to racist sentiment in terms of um, restrictions. But it was a very mixed, very mixed sort of policy, very mixed sort of response to the to the question. And that's kind of a bit, I suppose, where Starmer is. He seems to be afraid to say boo to a goose on this issue. Um, and and that's very Wilsonian, I suppose. Um, so I think on maybe on that, on that bombshell, um, that may be a good a good time <laughs> to conclude the podcast. And so it just behoves me to thank Laura um, and Glenn, and because nobody else is going to do it, I'm thanking myself for for this this hopefully interesting um, conversation about Wilson. And if you're one of those 25% Labour members who didn't know much about Wilson, um, hopefully you know something, um, and maybe you can think about what you think about Wilson now.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.